Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 12. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four spine-chilling tales for you about haunting humanoids, paranormal personalities, creepy crimes, and abnormal abodes. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Ha 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 ha. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author E.K. Kelly. Without further ado, I present to you The Gray Man at Lost Lake. When I was growing up, my family had issues with trespassers. That's something you expect to deal with when your home sits along the shores of a secluded lake, hidden deep within the woods. Even more surprising when your neighbors are all members of your own extended family. Yet, trespassers were a regular occurrence for my family. 
unsettling encounters with strangers in the woods, a mere fact of life that my cousins and I became familiar with by the time we were school age. Most trespassers were easy to explain. Lost hikers were the most common due to our proximity to a national park and its meandering trails. They found their way on our property by accident and were always happy for assistance and directions on how to get back to the park. Then there were the people who trespassed intentionally. It was well known in the nearby towns that our family's rather extensive property held within its borders some interesting bits of history and local lore. Researchers, writers, treasure hunters, and similar folk all made appearances, each hoping to find something interesting, some artifact or inspiration to help them make a name for themselves. While these encounters could be annoying, sometimes even a bit tense when the offenders refused to leave, they too were rarely cause for concern. That wasn't the case with the trespasser my cousins and I called the Gray Man. Any meeting with him was always something to be afraid of. The Gray Man got his name from the fact that while everyone had seen him at least once or twice, the descriptions of him were all vague and muddled. When our parents would question any of his kids, After an encounter to figure out what we saw, the explanations always went the same way. The child had seen a man in the woods that made no sound, said no words, and didn't resemble anything. What was he wearing? We kids could never remember. What color hair did he have? We kids could never say. All we could ever describe was the dread he made us feel and that his appearance was some hazy, murky gray. Our parents began calling these stories encounters with the gray man, and the title stuck. I had more than a few run-ins with the gray man throughout my childhood, but the one I'm going to share here today was the most unsettling. When you live in a lake, swimming is part of summer life. It's not just because of the entertainment and the exercises, but because it's a great way to keep cool during the long runs of humid 97-degree days, 36 degrees Celsius for the rest of you. With all the time we spent swimming, my cousins and I became as comfortable in the water as we were on land. We grew fearless of the depths below, ignorant of the dangers, always pushing to venture further and further from the shore whenever our parents weren't looking. The biggest rite of passage was swimming to the old fishing raft on the opposite end of the lake. One leg of the swim was just under a half mile if you cut right across the lake at its center. One mile round trip. By the time I was 14, I'd made the swim to the fishing raft a handful of times, always in the company of others, usually my cousins. Unfortunately, that was the year I decided to try it on my own. Over the summer, I'd been captivated by the coverage of the Olympics, specifically the triathlon. I was a lanky kid who had grown tall but forgot to fill out, too easily pushed around to be competitive in sports like football, basketball, or soccer. But I could run for days and swim better than any of the kids in my class. For my adolescent brain, it felt like a calling a sign that I was meant to train and become an Olympic triathlete. Armed only with what I'd learned from Bob Costas during the TV coverage, I built out my plan to begin my training. From the Olympics, I'd gathered that the swimming portion they did was about the same distance as going to the fishing raft and back. So I decided I'd start sneaking out of the house before dawn, make the swim when the waters were calm, be back before anyone noticed I was missing. That first night, I even slept in my suit. I was so excited to start my journey toward greatness. That morning, I woke up early, 5.30 a.m., just before sunrise, and crept down the stairs and out of the house without being noticed. I made my way down to the water's edge and gazed out over the lake before me, a pane of mirrored glass, smooth and unbroken. A light mist drift around the shoreline like a halo, 
where the warm lake water mixed with the cool air from the forest floor. It created a pillow that muffled sound, painting the scene with peace and tranquility. The world was calm as I broke the surface, slipped into the water, and began my swim. The first half of my debut practice run across the lake was uneventful. I was familiar with the swim, and I was confident in my ability to make it. With about one quarter remaining until I reached the raft and my midway turn, the electric jolt of a cramp struck my hamstring. I lurched in the water, floundering briefly, then righted myself and fought through the pain as I did a quick analysis of my situation. The raft was closer. Making it there would allow me to get out of the water to rest and stretch my hamstring. Heading to the raft, however, would leave me with a farther swim home once I was able to recover. If the cramp came back, I could be in real trouble. Though, if I turned now and tried to make it back without a break, I'd be putting myself at risk of drowning for sure. I decided to take the shorter route to safety, shifted my body into a backstroke, and continued my way to the raft. I reached the raft just barely, gulping water, struggling to stay afloat. I clawed my way up the rusted ladder like a shipwrecked rat sprawling across a splintered, weather-worn duck top. I lay there like that for at least ten minutes, eyes to the heavens gasping for air. As I breathed in deeply, my exhaustion dissipated, only to slowly be replaced by a different tingling sense. Despite the sun now shining down, and warming me, I could feel goosebumps forming across my arms and legs. Was it my brushwood drowning that had me set on edge? No, that wasn't what was gnawing at me. A feeling that I wasn't alone anymore filled up my insides until I could hardly stand it. I was suddenly acutely aware that I was being watched. Against my nerves, I forced myself to abruptly sit up and search the shoreline for whom or what had triggered my alarm bells. I spotted the cause in an instant. At the place where the forest meant the water, a figure stood in the mist. A gray man was watching me there. The only thing that separated us was the thirty or so yards of water between the raft and shore. The two of us remained like that, me seated on the raft, the gray man on the shore, as we studied each other. That was the longest unobstructed look I even got at the gray man, and I'm still at a loss for how to describe him. He was like a shadow with depth and weight. He had hair, but I couldn't tell you the color. He had features in his face, a nose, a mouth, but I couldn't tell you if they were distinguished or petite. He had eyes, but I couldn't tell you what color. He wore clothes, but I couldn't tell you their style. It was just there, a suggestion of a man, lacking the definition to make him complete. I was locked in an internal struggle, my mind fighting to make sense of what it was seeing, when the gray man stepped his foot forward from shore and plunged it into the lake. As it entered, the water bubbles churned, and droplets splashed down in utter silence. There was no sound. Then he stepped in again, and in muted motions began to wade toward me, and my haven upon the raft. As the gray man approached, inching deeper and deeper with each step, he did not attempt to swim. He continued forward in a march, feet firm upon the lake bed. The deeper he got, the more the water rose to his waist, then his chest, then his shoulders. Still, the gray man pushed forward. Still fifteen yards away from the raft, the gray man's head slipped below the water, a final ripple, and then there was nothing. I waited as the mirror-like tranquility slowly returned to the surface of the lake. Uneasy at the change in atmosphere, I jumped to my feet, attempting to center myself on the raft, feeling in that moment more exposed, vulnerable, and trapped than I had ever felt before. In anticipation of an attack, 
frantically searched around the raft's edges, looking for fingers and hands, reaching up to pull the gray man to the surface. All I could picture in my head was the final scene in Friday the 13th, the first one, where Jason burst up from the water and grabs a hold of a lone survivor as she sits in a boat, pulling her down to her death. I knew any minute that the same end would come for me. Yet time marched on and nothing happened. An impossible amount of time, far too long, for a person to remain submerged. They say time ticks by slowly in moments of crisis, but even so, I knew that it had to be long enough that any man would have needed to come up for air by now. Where was the gray man? I turned my search back to the shore. Had he retreated there while I was distracted with my search around the raft? If the gray man didn't make a sound when he entered the water, maybe he had left in the same silence. Could he be gone? That was something that I desperately wanted to believe. But just, I just couldn't convince myself it was true. He was still down there in the depths below waiting for me. As the sun rose high and reached midday, it beat down on me. I began to despair. How long could I remain here before I needed to force an attempt to swim back home? I could feel the sweat being pulled out of my body by humidity that wrapped me and weighed on me like a blanket. I was already starting to get dehydrated, yet I was surrounded by fresh water I didn't dare attempt to drink. I knew the moment I cupped my hands in the water, the trap would be sprung and I'd be pulled under. I was stuck there, able to see my house but unable to do anything to save myself. Legs aching, throat bone dry, fear consuming me, yet all I could do was wait and hope someone spotted me and came to my rescue. It was near dinner time, twelve hours after I set out that morning, before my cousin made his way down to the opposite lake shore. My initial screams for help were dry, hoarse, pathetic yelps, but eventually I got out a few good yells and caught his attention enough that he looked my way and could see me jumping and waving to him from across the lake. Minutes later, I saw him and my uncle hop in their fishing boat to make their way across to where I stood stranded. That was the longest period for me, when hope crept back inside me, but rescue still seemed so far off. When they reached me, I yammered off about how I'd cramped up during my swim. My uncle scolded me for being so stupid to swim out this far alone. When I began to mention the gray man, my uncle flashed me a skeptical, accusing look, then motioned around his arms held wide as if to say, There's nothing here, you crazy kid. I climbed up quickly at that point. Kids have an odd fear of adults not believing them. It's as if their own eyes are less reliable than adult logic. Once I was on the boat myself, I even began to feel silly about how I acted. The sheer amount of time had I wasted on that raft, I worried about something lurking in the water the whole time perfectly safe to dive in and swim home whenever I wanted. How much had I suffered because my mind ran wild with horror movie scenarios? As we pulled away and began the trip home, a hit of hysterical laughter began to bubble out of me. I laughed at myself, the stupidity of my irrational actions and the absurdity of the situation I'd put myself in. That laughter died in my throat, the moment I looked back at the raft, directly beneath it, between the barrel pontoons, that kept it afloat, was a head extended above the water. The gray man had been there below me, less than a foot away, waiting for me the whole time. If I had done anything other than what I did, made any different choices, he would have had me. I grabbed at my uncle excitedly, pointing at the raft, begging him to look at what was there, but by the time he turned to follow my direction, there was nothing to be seen. The gray man had vanished again. That night I struggled to sleep. A full day spent unprotected and exposed, under the harsh sun had taken its toll. 
My sunburn had already begun to blister, and I knew the next few days would be miserable. That night, the pain wouldn't even allow me to lie down on my bed. Instead, I stood in the darkness of my room, looking out the window. The moon was full, bathing the lake in light nearly as crisp as daytime. Under the moonlight, I could see clear across the lake, and spotted the raft. Upon it, I saw a shadow-like figure standing there, looking back at me. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I hope you enjoyed The Gray Man at Lost Lake, as written by E.K. Kelly. Up next, we've got another second tale of terror, courtesy of author Wentz Hesselman. Without further ado, I present to you Uncle Ron's Funeral. I woke up to the sight of my wife's bare back, the constellation of freckles that spanned both shoulder blades under a wavy nebula of red hair. I reached over and tapped her shoulder. Honey, it's, it's time, I said. Her body stiffened and she heaved a sigh. I don't want it. She mumbled. Something about the early morning grogginess made her sound like our teenage daughter. Come on, baby, you agreed to this. A slight woman, she floated up into a sitting position, grumbling something about how this funeral was going to rob her of her Saturday. I nodded with a smirk. But it's your uncle, honey. I didn't like him. Nobody liked Uncle Ron, for that matter. I could see it already. The family at the service... Shaking hands with well-wishers, enduring endless waves of, I'm sorry for your loss, doing their best to look like they actually felt any sort of loss. I know that sounds cold, but Ron just had a way of leaving you uh, feeling damp and slimy. He smiled and joked as much as any uncle stereotype. It was in the gaps between sentences, the leers between laughs, the ticks between seconds that you glimpsed something more real, much deeper, much darker than this facade of a brown-eyed good old boy he tried to sell you. I met Ron the first time I attended my wife's family reunion. That was before I was family. You think you learn so much at one of those big family events, right? Nah. You learn what the family is comfortable letting you learn. The real learning is five or six reunions deep when everyone stops dressing up for you, so to speak. So I met this cousin and that cousin and that aunt and, oh, by the way, this Uncle Ron, the large man with the trimmed beard that is practically steamrolling his way into my personal space, all loud and jolly. 
Gee, if this is what Uncle Ron is like in one evening, he must be quite a character when you join the fam officially and see him on a regular basis. First thing I notice is Ron's habit of his eyes darting around like ping-pong balls full of jumping beans. I didn't know what was up. Maybe he had kids and he was dabbing in some of their Ritalin. After maybe two or three reunions, I noticed that whenever Ron comes barreling over to me, my wife slips away just as quickly. Then I start noticing that his eyes don't sling around at random. They rapid tick in the direction of my wife, wherever she happened to be. Seeing this behavior hold up for many family shindings to come, I started seeing what would happen uh, if I put myself between my wife and Ron's line of sight. Maybe he knew I was on to him. Maybe he was trying to hide his awareness of my knowing. Either way, cock-blocking his eyes made the jovial mask drop. Those black eyes kindled with hateful embers. So, from that point on, whenever I knew Uncle Ron was going to be around, I stayed shackled at the ankle to my wife, if you get me. Over the years, he started invading the personal space of other tender young female kinfolk. He never did anything, not that I knew of. A few years ago, he kind of vanished. People talked about him once in a while. Something about being really sick. I could have told you that. Something about being on extra strong medication that makes it difficult for him to come out and join us as his usual flannel and camel-clad beer basket self. Nobody missed him after that. Again, I don't mean to be cold, because uh, I'm sure that nobody misses him even now, but this is the American Midwest, and we say goodbye to the recently departed, be they creepy family members or famous serial killers that just got the chair. My wife pressed her long fingers to her eyebrow, and her sea-green eyes stared at something I couldn't see. I joined her in sitting up. I haven't heard any movement from Lindsay's room yet. She's probably still out. Well, then go wake her up, my wife snapped. Okay, since you ask so nicely. And I wrapped my knuckles on my daughter's door and made the announcement it was time to get up and at him because Uncle Ron wasn't going to see himself off. I don't want to. I snorted, like mother, like daughter. Eventually, we were all up, but everybody's movements were slow and reluctant, to the point that I had to scrap my plans for making a hot expanse of breakfast and switch to toasted muffins with butter. It was clear that nobody was thinking about Uncle Ron or the family. I won't lie, I was thinking about myself, too. I knew I wouldn't be able to sit with a cup of coffee in my hand and our fat orange-striped cat Chester in my lap, providing the silence with the soundtrack of his purr. But I still had enough room in my heart to support my wife's family. A hunched Lindsay shuffled through the kitchen like an old woman, strawberry blonde hair tangled and robbed of its luster by sleep. I practically threw an English muffin at her, and she gave me that indignant shrug that teenagers practice most of their waking hours. Move faster. We've got a, a deadline. She rolled her eyes. Another finely tuned teenage skill. My wife passed the top of the stairs in a blink of pink bathrobe. Oh, how many toasted muffins for my amazing wife that dodged the jeans that made Uncle Ron? No answer. Oh, three today. Okay. Damn, we're hungry. She came downstairs, transformed into someone fit for a funeral as I was buttering her last muffin. I handed her the halved bread and a plate, and she froze. Why the hell did you make me three? I know you wanted twelve, but I gotta eat two, you know. She swatted my shoulder and turned before I could see her stifled smile. I reloaded the toaster with more English muffins and bolted upstairs to get myself ready. 
Here's the thing I've learned about formal and or somber events. If you have a dick, you're ready in a fraction of the time. It takes anyone else that doesn't. Either that or I'm just sloppy. I found my dressiest blue shirt and tie, dug out the last pair of slacks that fit and called it even. I nearly ran Lindsay over when I came out of the bedroom. Dad, you look like you're ready. Here's the keys to the car. Be a peach. Start it up for us, would you? She took the keys and stomped down the stairs toward the kitchen. Good girl, just like her mom. Henry, can you come here for a second? I heard my wife call from downstairs. Why can't you come up here? Henry! Okay, be right there. I made sure my tie didn't make me look like a complete idiot before I answered my wife's summons. I tumbled down the stairs where she was waiting for me, holding out her palms. I can't find the car keys. I smiled really big, just in time for the sound of our big, ugly green sedan to turn over in the garage. Found them. She gently slapped me. I'll file domestic battery charges later. You're pretty much ready, right? Sure. It was when we were moving toward the door and Katie grabbed the door handle that I heard her say, Henry, can you come here for a second? Raised my shoulders as though she could see me behind her. Hey, hello, I'm right here. My wife turned around and looked at me funny. What? You asked me if I could come here. Well, I'm here, see? Genuine confusion froze my wife's expression, and she slowly shook her head. As my wife's mouth hung slightly open, I heard her voice a second time. From behind me. From somewhere upstairs. Are you still in the house? You better not be in the car without me. Come up here for a second, please. I stared at her. You heard that, right? She shook her head again. Heard what? I tightened my arms around myself. Let's just get in the car and go. She nodded, her look of puzzlement still not leaving her face. She looked at me like I might not be quite all right. I wasn't sure if I was. She opened the garage door that led outside. I was bitten by the exhaust from the sedan. Teenagers, why'd my daughter didn't open the garage door first? I don't know. My wife stepped into the garage, and as soon as I tried to step after her, the door snapped shut with a resolute slam. The hell? Henry, come on. I just need you for a few seconds. Came the voice again. It was indistinguishable from my wife's. But my wife was getting in the car. I heard the car door shut. Thanks for slamming the door in my face, I shouted. I tried the door, but it was locked. That meant it was locked from the outside. How? How could that be? I can hear you downstairs, my wife called. I can see you in the garage, I replied. But the voice didn't answer. I fumbled with both the latch to the deadbolt and the lock in the center of the doorknob. It made no difference. I peered through the glass of the door, and that was the first time I noticed that I couldn't see my wife anywhere. Just my daughter sitting in the driver's seat of the car as the exhaust fumes began to haze my view. I fruitlessly rattled the door. My anger started to get the best of me, and I pounded on the door as if it would get anyone's attention shook one of the pictures off the wall, and it fell face first and shattered. Damn it! I yelled and went for the mess of broken glass. I knew which picture it was before I picked it up. It had to have been the one my wife treasured the most, the photograph of all of us standing in front of the house when we finally got a loan for it, a photo that was snapped by Uncle Ron himself. Behind the jagged teeth of broken glass, indeed, was a photo of the house, but it was wrong. It was a black and white printed photo. It looked like it had been clipped out from a paper. None of us were in it. I gingerly removed the picture from the frame just in case there might be another picture sharing its space. But there was nothing. Not in the frame, not in the floor, 
tried to tell myself that the picture I remembered must still be hanging up. I looked up at the wall and my brain couldn't process what I was seeing. There were supposed to be three other picture frames besides the one I held. A family photo at a reunion, one of my wife in her 20s, and one of me as a teen. The high-quality Kodak of my wife had been swapped out for another newspaper photo, one of her that could have been taken in the last two years. The one of me looked like a mugshot, again, from a newspaper. The family photo reunion did have a group of people in it, but it wasn't family. It was a group of policemen gathered on the lawn of our house. They were focused on a couple of men in trench coats wearing gloves and handling a few items in plastic bags. It looked every bit like a forensic team. I came closer to see if I could make out what they were handling. Henry, come on! I've lost track of how many times I've called you. I finally looked in the direction of the stairs. The wall next to the steps was always where we kept most of our family photos. Something inside me told me that I didn't want to look at those pictures. Why? I don't know. I began moving toward the first step. My eyes were locked on the closet picture on the wall, and I couldn't look away. I could finally see it. Another picture clipped from a newspaper. This one was of the house. Police tape was visible around the front door and in the yard. I swallowed a dry nothing that prickled my throat. Honey, what happened to all the pictures? I yelled up the stairs. No response. Fun's over, babe. We need to get going, okay? You really need to teach me how you threw your voice like that. More silence. I'm serious. Let's get this day over with and behind us. Daddy, I think Mom's getting mad at you for real. This time it was my daughter's voice that came from upstairs. Then I heard the horn of the car from the garage. A long and sustained blad of noise. A gear of realization clicked in my head, and I went to the kitchen door to look out. The car was still running. My daughter was still in the car by herself. She was slumped against the steering wheel, clouds of exhaust bubbling all around her. I stopped thinking and I started moving. I kicked at the kitchen door as hard as I could. Have you ever heard someone say that they were so worked up that they saw red? I can tell you it's not a metaphor. I assaulted that door and I waited for the crack of the wood around either the latch or the hinges, but there was neither. I kicked and I kicked as the adrenaline dumped into the system, and my senses became vivid with pure panic. The door wouldn't yield at all. My last kick threw me off balance, and I staggered backward and sideways against the wall. Daddy! I heard Lindsay's voice again over the blast of the car horn. From where I held myself up against the wall, I looked at my daughter through the glass of the door. I decided I could stand a mutilated arm if I could shatter one of the nine small panes and reach down and unlock the garage door. It was as if the angels were smiling on me that day because the door stop for the door to the garage was none other than an old brick. I snatched it with taut fingers and brought it to the pane closest to the door handle. I waited for the rain of glinting glass like razor blade snow, but they never came. There was no raucous singing of shattering. The glass taunted me without so much as a scratch. I paused for only a moment, too overloaded to believe what I was seeing. I rained a torrent of blows on that lower left pane. Nothing, no purchase. Snarling, I tried the other panes, and they were just as sturdy. Practically bulletproof, I started to see sparks in my field of view with my escalating panic. Lindsay! God damn it! Open the door! Open the garage door, Lindsay! I'm up here, Daddy! The words came from upstairs and they startled me somehow. My daughter wasn't upstairs. I could see her, swallowed up in poisonous vapors in the garage. I howled and sprinted to the front door. If I could just get outside, I'd find a way into the garage. And guess what? 
front door was locked as well, just as supernaturally unmovable as the garage door. Well, this is beyond insane. This can't actually be happening. No, 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 no. I began another kicking session against the front door. No, 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 no! There was a sound of something cracking, and it wasn't the door frame. My ankle screamed at me, and I suddenly couldn't put my weight on it. I nearly fell over as the door suffered another barrage of kicks, except I wasn't kicking it. Whatever was happening was taking place on the other side. Hello? Hello? I'm stuck inside my own house. My daughter's trapped in the garage. She's going to die if nobody opens that damn door out there. Hello? There was no answer. I tried looking through the slivers of the prismatic glass in the door. Something made them hard to see through. Then I was blinded by lights, flashing red and blue lights. Was it the cops? Part of me felt relief at the idea of the cops showing up. The other part of me didn't feel anything that made sense. I brushed it off. I tried shouting even louder. Hello? My daughter's trapped in the garage. Somebody please help. We know you're in there, so come out with your hands up. Boomed an amplified voice. Daddy, I'm scared. Henry, you need to get up here and now. I'm not getting around. I craned my neck to look at the top of the stairs. The bedroom door was shut. It was voices. Daddy! Henry! Look, buddy, it'll go so much better for you if you just come out here. A high, tinny ringing began to swell in my skull that hurt my ears from the inside out, hurt the back of my eyes. I twisted the front door again with the expected results. I looked back upstairs. I finally began hobbling toward the stairs, my ankle blaring like the car horn in the garage. What the hell is all the noise, Henry? I can barely hear myself think up here. The photos in the wall beside the stairs weren't just newsprint photos anymore. They were full newspaper pages. The pictures were all of the house, of my wife, of our daughter, of me. There were large and ominous headlines, but I couldn't read them. Either the letters were out of sequence, or my brain wasn't reading them right. And then, I saw a photo of Uncle Ron. Actually, I saw several photos of Uncle Ron. I tried to read the prints surrounding them, but it, too, was incomprehensible. I felt lightheaded and could feel the breath of the grinning, laughing hyena of madness that were nipping at my ankles. I continued my unsteady climbing of the stairs. At this point, all I wanted was that somehow, someway, my daughter was, in fact, upstairs no matter how crazy the explanation for what I was seeing and hearing. If she could just be okay, if my wife could just be okay with her. I crested the stairs. My wife and my daughter were both talking over each other, and their voices were coming from one door, our bedroom door. I touched the doorknob, and all felt silent at once. The car horn, the police outside, my family pushed the door open. Our bed was white as per usual, but it looked like someone had spilled a bucket of the ugliest deep red paint all over it. My wife was in her eggshell blue nightie, and she was in the final movement of pulling the blankets over something. She was splattered with an ugly red, a chocolate red, head to toe. Her hair was flattened with the weight of it, she looked at me with her electric eyes and pressed a single finger to her lips. Shh! The baby is sleeping finally. She didn't prevent me from coming over to the head of the bed and pulling the covers back. There lay Lindsay, drenched in blood to a degree that exceeded the imagination. She clutched her own entrails twisting them the way a sleeping child might do in their blanket. Kate, my wife, lay beside her, even though she was also standing beside me. Honey, I wheezed. I think I'm coming unglued. I think I'm... She put one hand on my shoulder and pointed to the far corner of the bed beside her copy that I hadn't pulled back yet. I threw her a look, telling her 
I didn't want any more of this. She merely nodded to the bed. I tugged the full length of the sodden blanket, weighted down with blood, and there was a third body. It was me. The way I'd looked this morning before I showered and got dressed. My stomach was cut wide open, and I bled all over my side of the bed. Hands up! yelled a policeman. They had not seen or heard enter the bedroom. His service pistol was aimed right at me, and my hands indeed went up. And somehow that still wasn't quite what he wanted. The crack of the pistol sounded three times, and I felt and heard three wet thumps in my body. I fell backward as the ground left my feet. Someone was slapping my face. Ronald! Ron! Ron, can you hear me? I opened my eyes and found myself inches from the face of a man with a white and closely cropped beard and very thick glasses. He looked irritated. I was in a chair. I was at a table where there were several dolls. Most of them were Barbies that were in various stages of abuse and neglect. Missing limbs, scribbled on with marker and pen. Three of them were crammed into a bed while two Barbies stood beside it. A disproportionately sized police officer, action figure, stood at the foot of the bed. He fell asleep, Ron, the man said flatly. Then he scribbled something onto a clipboard. My mouth wagged and my voice fired off gently. Beg your pardon, the man said. My name's Henry. Of course it is, he grumbled. He walked over to a door with a narrow opening at his eye level and nodded to someone on the other side. Two large men in white uniforms entered and lifted me out of the chair like an oversized and very stiff doll. They carried me out into a hallway that was whiter than white. The long tubular lights overhead hurt to look at. I couldn't even keep my eyes open. Then I was thrown onto the floor and there was the sound of a door shutting behind me. The light in there was more bearable. It was small, too small. It was a single light bulb in what looked like a mason jar in a metal cage. The walls were covered with newspapers. The detail made me shiver. This must have been the point where my mind decided it couldn't take any more. I curled into a ball like a pill bug and fell into a sleep that was a perfect shutdown of all thought. When I awoke, I lay motionless for as long as possible, waiting for something to happen so I wouldn't have to do anything. When I finally opened my eyes, the very first thing I saw was the bold headline of one newspaper page on the wall. Murder. The myriad pages surrounding it, like mangy feathers, had similar grim headlines. I didn't have to look at the photos closely to recognize them as the newsprint pictures that had somehow replaced the pictures in my house, like a cancer. As I looked over the swell of information with glassy eyes, I finally saw it, next to the toilet in the saddest-looking corner of the room, a sink with a mirror over it. I hobbled over to it and gazed into the bottomless, dark eyes of Uncle Ron. Days passed, then weeks. I've done little more than lie in my moth-eaten bed and sleep, or sit on the edge of it for hours and stare at the floor. I stare at the floor because there aren't any newspaper pages on the floor. A few times, only a few, I've looked in that mirror again. Each time I looked, I expected to see Henry, me. But I see Uncle Ron. That man from before comes to see me once or twice a week. He gives me pills and asks me how they make me feel. I can smell the B.S. on his breath, and I cut to the chase each time. Look, what's really going on here? Really? My name is Henry. My wife's name is Kate. My daughter's name is Lindsay. We live at 534 Riverloft Circle Drive in Silver Key Crossing, Illinois. I've been paying the mortgage on that house for well over 16 years with blood, sweat, and tears. We were leaving for Uncle Ron's funeral one Saturday, and... I talk and talk and talk. I tell the same story each time I see the same doctor. He makes notes that scrape and click on his clickboard, and then he leaves. Then he comes back. We repeat this little social ritual. 
I've started reading the newspaper pages, cluttering the walls of my room. Excuse me, my cell. I can only read them several paragraphs at a time. What they try to tell me is huge, and the connections I make to what I think I already know, well, these things are bigger than huge, bigger than my sanity. Today I looked in that mirror again, still Uncle Ron's face. I sat down on the bed. That's still where I spend most of my time. I reviewed everything I know about Ron. I know I hate him. I know he gives me the creeps. I know I figured out he has the worst incest crush in my wife. There's nothing about the man I like. If there's anything I understand about the man, I don't want to admit it. don't want to think about it. I can't think of a single damn thing I have in common with Uncle Ron, except his face. I have Uncle Ron's face. The lab coat visits me, the newspaper pages, plastered all over my cell, the mirror next to my toilet. They all tell me the same thing. I don't want to face it. I can't. What I can piece together is that Ron had a fixation on his niece, Kate, for a long time, like from when she was 11 or 12. Sick bastard. Over the years, he kept every shred of everything connected to her. Photos, scraps of hair, even clothes. Pencils from her school supplies that she had not on. Then she met Henry when she was 17. They dated past high school, and their lives overlapped tightly, more than her life would ever tie up with Uncle Ron. He continued to hawk her, live for the little thrill of being near when he gets close, like at family reunions. Henry started to sniff out the stink of his perversion. Ron tried to befriend Henry to get him to relax a little bit, but no. Katie was a garden and Henry was the wall protecting it. Ron tried to replicate the feeling with others, but it, it just it wasn't the same. It wasn't a cheap thrill of a sick crush on your own relatives. It was Kate. Katie. She was special. Ron continued to collect. He didn't just go for things attached to Kate, but also things attached to Henry. He wanted to be Henry, this snake charmer of Kate's love. He wanted to be that man that had the key to Kate's heart. Ron collected pictures of the house, of the family, of Henry, as if it would all somehow, one day, allow him to switch bodies with the man. In a way, that happened when the medication began. After all, what would any good psychotherapist do? When your patient is well over a decade, is steadily sinking into the mire of depression and insomnia and PTSD and anxiety and so forth and so on. Under the fog of psychotropics, Ron transmuted the dark artifacts of his scrapbooks into false memories until he believed he was Henry, until I believed I was Henry. When I'm not staring at the floor, I'm staring at my hands. These have to be Henry's hands. I remember vividly, clearly, seeing Henry's hands both grasp Kate's left hand as she proposed to her and slid a ring on her finger. It was Henry's hands, holding Kate's during countless slow dances. It was Henry's hands that massaged Kate's back, her shoulders, that wove magic on her skin during years of lovemaking. It couldn't be Ron's hands. Ron's hands took a sledgehammer to the front door of that house on 534 Riverloft Circle Drive. Ron's hands had swung the hammer against Henry's body until his ribcage was gravel and his insides began to bulge out of his ruptured flesh. Ron's hands that turned the hammer on Kate when she wouldn't stop throwing things and saying all those awful, hurtful things that stung Ron to his very soul and put a gun to the frail skull of the small part of him that loved her with all he had and pulled the trigger without a second thought. Ron's hands that pull all three of them in bed together, mangled limbs, dislocated jaws, bodies beaten past all sense of order. Ron's hands that were put in handcuffs. Surely they were arresting the wrong person. It wasn't Ron. 
He was Henry. He was just trying to come home. He was trying to get the bad people out of his house. The people that didn't belong there. The people that were trying to take away his wife. His Kate. I stopped staring at my hands and glanced to a crooked wall clock. I guess I've been looking at my hands for a few hours. I can't be Ron. I hate Ron. 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 I hope you enjoyed Uncle Ron's Funeral by author Wentz Hesselman. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Story Time, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep. If you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program 
each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>